politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and independent conservatives to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. You might be chattel to our government, but here you are still patriots. Um, It is Friday, October 16th. We are always thankful for Friday after such a long and productive week where we always work hard to bring you the most up-to-date analysis of policy, politics, and really everything going on. Today, we're going to take a different tact, and rather than focus on first principles and policy like we typically do, we are going to do horse race with a very special guest, um, the head of the Trafalgar polling group, who thinks Trump is close to winning opposite of what everyone else thinks. We'll get his opinion, agree or disagree, and you could let me know, so I'm very excited to hear from him. I just first want to tie up some loose ends. Uh, We're talking about elections. I, I just had this thought yesterday. Isn't it funny how Chris Christie is always the 800 pound gorilla in the room to go and hand an election to the Democrats? He was famous for the hug of Obama when it appeared that Republicans were coming back in 2012, and suddenly he's out there and hugs Obama, praises him for everything he did. In other words, adopts and legitimizes and validates the premise of the other side during the most important time of a battle. You would think people like that would be done with, and we would have changed the party. But what's emblematic of this party is that the crap rises to the top and the dead wood never dies and it keeps coming back alive and boxes out the live growth, the vibrant growth of what should be live trees in the GOP forest and the supposed conservative ecosystem. So here we are eight years later and Chris Christie is doing the same thing. We have a major contentious fight over the Science and and the response behind the virus, whether this is a natural phenomenon, that there's nothing you can do to stop it, but the best you can do is fortify yourself, fortify your body with the proper vitamins, the proper treatments, and have a functioning society, or whether you're just going to kill more people. And Chris Christie is out there saying, oh my gosh, I mean, it's the perfect foil for the left because he's saying look you know i wasn't careful and i wasn't wearing a mask and that was wrong i learned i spent seven days in the icu this is hilarious now i usually don't like making fun out of people's personal um character not well not character but personal physical attributes we're all created in the image of god but if you're gonna sit there and blame non-mask wearing when incontrovertibly Most people who get it are wearing masks because most people in general are, whether it's by force, whether it's by social control or pressure or peer pressure, most people are doing it. So the other side has gotten what they wanted. They got everything they wanted in place and they're still not, it's not working. And he wants to blame it on that. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't say the guy is morbidly obese. So gee, like, (laughs) I should have been more careful. Well, Chris, don't you think you should have been a little bit more careful about your BMI? That's the big issue there. And the vaccine will, will likely not work for 
so unlike that to the extent it works at all and, and comes to fruition. I also have a hard time believing he was in the ICU for seven days. The pre-reporting sure didn't sound like that, and he's sure making his rounds. He sure doesn't seem like someone who was in the ICU for seven days. I mean, I understand if you say you were hospitalized, but in the ICU for seven days, something seems a little bit funny about that. Um, but anyway, just wanted to note that he is only a news story because he was brought into this administration and was re- regarded as a Trump advisor. Why? Why? This is something that if Trump does win it a second term, as our next guest kind of thinks will happen, he needs to get better about this. A couple other quick points. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem just announced 4.1% unemployment in South Dakota. 4.1%. That's a solid number, virtually full employment at any time. Certainly to have those numbers in this time is astounding. And remember, that is not money. Those are lives. When you're talking about 4% unemployment versus you know some of these states like Michigan that have 15% and really a lot more underemployment with all the people whose hours were cut back, those are lives. That's not just, you know, am I going to have $3 million in my 401k or $2.5 million? That's not what it is. So kudos to her and her leadership. I'm going to try to get her on the program sometime soon. One other point, and again, as we, as we talk about, you know, prospects of Trump winning or not winning this election, and what hinges on this election, everyone talks about the Supreme Court. It truly is hard to overstate what a swing and a miss it was for the Federalist Society to push upon Trump, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. I don't have time to get into this now, but I'm going to have a very detailed article out. There is a case of an elite, not, not just like an LPR criminal alien, but an illegal alien who stole someone's identity. He was convicted on identity theft. And Gorsuch and Kavanaugh suggested in oral arguments in a case that should have never gone to the Supreme Court. Because this is actually a case where the Ace Circuit is the most conservative circuit. They ruled the right way. They dismissed this guy's claim for cancellation of removal. Supreme Court decides to take up the case, which in itself is a red flag. Although I guess you could say there's all there's still four justices to bring it up. And I guess Ginsburg probably voted for cert before she died. So, you know, they had the votes. But Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, there's an article from law360.com. It's, absur- it's a subscription service, but I quote from it in my article, where they basically suggest, well, the guy was here for so long. He has a family and kids, and he only stole the thing to work to get a job. That's not much of a crime. It's kind of vague. The government needs to prove, basically suggesting the government has to prove he's deportable, when in fact, it's the opposite. He's deportable no matter what, even if he convicted no crime. The fact that you could apply for cancellation of removal unless you have a crime of moral torpitude, that's an optional leniency that the attorney general may issue, but he doesn't have to if they want. And even if they did, the burden of proof is on the alien It is very disturbing that they are essentially doing, basically Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are essentially doing to this, to immigration, to sovereignty, what they've done to transgenderism. This is a very big problem. And as I chronicle in the article, I don't have time to really delve into it. Maybe if we have time and there's 
aren't other bigger stories on Monday. I'll talk about it then. But I, I note there are several other disturbing statements and, and decisions rendered by the two of them on immigration that are not just kind of like very deep in the weeds technical questions, but really speak to the philosophy of sovereignty that they fundamentally don't believe in it, and which is Supreme Court precedent too. But it's funny how they only follow it when they want. It is very disturbing. I have a lot better, I have better vibes with Barrett, but that's the problem. We didn't have Barrett the first two times. We had these duds struck out twice. I mean, we had free shots at this. We could have had three Amy Barretts. We only have one. And again, I, I still don't think, and I hope I'm pleasantly surprised, that Amy is going to be on par with Thomas. I think more like Alito, but okay, if we would have had three Alitos, that would be one thing, but we don't. I just want you to know that. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are very concerning on immigration. And that is very encompassing. So this was in the Prada case, Prada v. Barr. Is it Barr? Um, we might talk about that again. Look for my article at The Blaze on that. Um, one other quick thing, just with the excess deaths we talked about yesterday, and I have my long article out explaining how the flu is completely boxed out by this virus. Um, Kyle sent me overall data showing that globally, the flu has been reduced by 98%. So that is a huge deal. That has very broad implications um, in terms of what excess deaths are going to look like in the coming years, in the coming months, um, and overall how this has really just replaced the flu. It's not in addition to the flu. And what is so important about that is that they are building panic and, and creating policies based on a premise that COVID together with the flu, which they suddenly have discovered that it you know could not overwhelm, but fill up hospitals, and it always does, that the two together is going to destroy us, when in fact it is a proven fact that it's a seesaw. By definition, that will not happen. By definition... If you are having COVID spreading throughout the winter as much as it is now, then you will not have a flu season. If you if it doesn't, now if it totally stops, then that's a great thing. Then yeah, we will have a flu season. It will be somewhat delayed, but that's a good thing. You're not going to have both. And moreover, I don't know if I really mentioned this yesterday, but I want to put a finer point on this. How important this is. It's one thing if you have COVID of March versus the flu like well yeah that's that's you know definitely worse it's not as bad as they made it out to be but it's definitely worse but right now it's actually a great proposition because right now it's a case demic back then it wasn't a case demic right now it's a case demic which means tons of cases mostly asymptomatic and very mild very few even get it like the flu and a much smaller percentage hospitalized, and even then, um, many, many more are surviving. So, if anything, it's kind of an amazing thing if you think about it. Again, I'm not trying to praise COVID. I'm just saying, think about this thought for a moment. You are boxing out the flu 
which in general, especially younger people and school kids, they could get meaningfully sick from it. You know, to get clinically ill is still pretty rare, does happen, but they could get pretty sick from that. Three to five days of fever. I've seen kids with more than that. So you're boxing out the flu for something that for most people, they don't even get the flu from. It's a cold or nothing. That's a pretty good proposition. Because remember, it's not the lethality of it that boxes it out. It's the circulation of it. And it's an an immunobiological phenomenon where it kind of makes you immune to other respiratory viruses. And this is very important. Again, people forget a million people each year go to the hospitals for some form of pneumonia. After childbirth, it's the most common thing that brings people to the hospital. Now, there are many avenues to pneumonia, many pathways to it. Some are um, bacterial. But if this boxes out the flu and possibly many other respiratory viruses, are we going to see a a reduced on net, a reduced burden in most places in the hospitals? Is this whole thing, this destruction, all of these excess deaths and panic and isolation and fear and drug overdoses and suicides and people missing cancer screenings and other preventative health care that's going to result in excess deaths for 10 years to come as a result of a premise that simply is not true. And in fact, we might wind up with less. So that's an important point I wanted to share with you guys. So folks, obviously, we covered a lot of issues today. But I know, based on the title of this show, I know why you're tuning in. You want to hear where the race stands. Everyone wants to know that. That's what's on your minds. And I know I'm not really going to get a lot of you to focus on other stuff the next two and a half weeks, and I understand it. So we're going to bring on a special guest today. Now, as you all know, I'm kind of a black and white guy. I am. There's no gray with me. I'm very certain about where I think first principles are and what I believe, what is the best for the country on a given issue at a given time. But if you're going to ask me, well, what do other people think? Where does the horse race stand? That's where someone like me gets a little bit more murky. That's not my expertise. And, you know, like everyone else, I was watching the fact that Trump was behind in all the polls during the entire duration of this election. And I was thinking, look, you know, it was the same thing in 2016, and it turned out that Trump won. But then... You know, after he appeared to be surging after the convention, it looked like it was turning back a little bit and looked like it was headed in the wrong direction. That was kind of concerning for those that want to see Trump reelected. But the question is, is everyone wrong? Look, there's an eerie dichotomy we are seeing. Just today, you look at all the national polls they have Trump down by 10, 11, 12 points. I mean, we're talking about FDR, LBJ style landslides. But then you have Trafalgar Group, it's a pollster, a polling outfit run by Robert Cahaley out of Georgia that has Trump downright up a tick by a net 0.6% in Michigan. And those are two pictures that obviously cannot work together. Because, you know, if he's down nationally 10 to 12 points, you're talking about losing Arizona. You're talking about putting Texas, Georgia in play. But if if he's up even in Michigan, 
then he's certainly not losing the election and he's certainly not behind 10 points. Maybe he could still lose the popular vote a little bit like he did last time. Certainly, certainly not losing. With us today is none other than the man of the hour, Robert Cahaley, that just put out on his Twitter, and you could follow him at Robert Cahaley, that's C-A-H-A-L-Y, straight up his name on Twitter, so you could see the latest breaking news from him, from his polls in the coming days, which will be very critical, just published a poll out of Michigan, three uh, percentage margin of error, um, having Trump up 46.5 to 45.9. This is a state that everyone has him losing. Now, you might say, well, this guy's kind of crazy, this polling outlet. Well, he has a 92.6% five-year uh, accuracy rating. In 2016, some of you might remember, uh, Trafalgar was the only polling outlet that called Pennsylvania and Michigan. Remember, everyone had him losing that. A lot even had him losing Florida and several other states that he wound up winning uh, you know, more easily. He called Pennsylvania and Michigan when everyone kind of had it in the same position as it is now. So he is someone that cannot be ignored. Now, you might think, well, you know, he's always has a Republican, pro-Republican bias, Republican pollster. Um, so he got it, got lucky that time. Well, in 2018, he called the Senate races accurately. And importantly, he called the DeSantis race, our buddy Ron DeSantis, that he would win as well as the um, Senate race there. That was the governor's race, the Senate race uh, for Scott when everyone else had had them losing, particularly DeSantis. But he also did have the Democrats winning in Montana and West Virginia and some other states that ultimately the Democrats did win in. So this is very, very interesting. He was the most accurate pollster in 2016. This is exactly the type of person we want to have to give us a clear direction of where the race stands, where are the demographics, where are the shifts, how does this compare to 2016? Robert, thanks so much for taking your time today on this busy day to join us. Good to be here. Good to be here. Well, look, you know, as you know, I was kind of skeptical um, to begin with, to me, I was concerned. I understand that there seems to be some sort of bias in the general polling that's missing the organic Trump support. And I think that's been proven. But then I saw the last two weeks or so things turn really bad. And my concern was even if those polls, let's say, are off by five to seven points, but you know, they should be pretty consistent in their trajectory. And if they're headed in a bad direction, doesn't that mean we're headed for, at least as of now, worse off than we were in 2016? Why do you think this is tracking pretty closely with 2016? Well, one, we still have the same basic problem, but it's been amplified. 2016, you know, they they did their um, deep dive among the polling establishment, and they concluded that the race just shifted. And that they really weren't wrong because the national polls were right. And, you know, that they just, these the state polls, that, that they just, that the national race shifted and they just didn't see it coming. And, and so they really weren't wrong. And then they said, well, maybe if we were wrong, we didn't survey it uh, based on education enough. But the race didn't shift. They didn't survey education wrong. They didn't get the feelings of people who were hesitant to say, 
what their true feelings were. People were hiding how they were going to vote because they didn't like being called deplorable. They didn't like people making assumptions about the kind of person they were based on what they said on the poll. So they haven't fixed that because they still, you know, this establishment still relies predominantly on these live polls. And when you get a call from a live person who calls you by name, the odds of you feeling comfortable enough to share with this stranger who knows who you are, that you're for Donald Trump in a day and age where people get labeled all kinds of nasty words that are far worse than deplorable. Uh, you know, people are just hesitant to say that. And so we see a lot of people who just don't want to participate in polls and they certainly don't want to give their actual feelings. And, you know, it, 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 it there's a name for this is called the social desirability bias. It's been around for a long time in politics. We've, we've seen it over the years and, you know, we saw it certainly in Florida again uh, last time where there was no difference between what people were saying on the Senate race, if you were for Nelson or if you were for Scott, but we saw Gillum with about a five point edge that wasn't real. The people were saying their form who weren't because they figured it was the politically correct thing to say and they wouldn't get judged harshly for saying it. So it exists and it existed on its own. It was going to be a problem this year. And then this summer happened and then we did cancel culture and then we did all of the, the, the ridicule that people are getting for expressing conservative beliefs. I mean, we, we started this year one way, and by the time we got to J- July 4th, there was a genuine debate about whether Mount Rushmore was a white supremacist symbol. This is literally how far from reality we have gotten. And so people who have conservative beliefs do not want to be judged. They, they, they don't want somebody who doesn't know them to, to make determinations about them. They don't know who's really asking. We, we see people, uh, you know, outed uh, for holding conservative opinions all the time. We see people docs. We see people being confronted at restaurants. I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable. And so this is not something we've ever experienced quite this way in this country. And so it, it is there, – there was always a respect for different opinions. Yes, they were people who were mad at each other. But, I mean, even the accounts I read of the Vietnam War, people who very vehemently on two different sides of that. But they did not – some of the same soldiers who come back who were in favor of what they were doing would say things like, but we fought so people would have the right to express their opinions. But this free expression is, is really – in many ways, kind of under assault right now. And um, so there's the real hesitation to give you genuine feelings. So that's where they're they're just not measuring that. Uh, And it's because they don't want to. I don't know. Is it because they don't know how to? Uh, Do the polls have an agenda? I think some of the media polls absolutely do. Certainly. So I think that's clear that we know we can't trust anything. We're seeing that with the coronavirus data. We're literally seeing basic things that are being obfuscated or distorted. You literally can't trust anything anymore. And it, and, and it doesn't surprise me that that would be true with polling, too. But I think what a lot of people would say is that even more friendlier pro-Republican polling has Biden up significantly. So it wouldn't be that there's an agenda, but you're saying that with those, it's just that their methodology is not picking up this phenomenon of the shy voter that's scared to tell a live caller 
that they are against where the predominant culture is seem to be. And, and you're saying that was around for a while, but that we are living in uncharted territory, that it's been exacerbated even beyond the first Trump election, given what has occurred this year. And I, I was very skeptical of what you're describing for many years, but I've seen it with my own audience where a number of people emailed me and said, hey, Daniel, could you make a private Facebook fan page, not a public one, because I, I can't be seen as doing this you know, because of my job. And I really hear that a lot more than ever. Um, so my question to you then is, what does it mean to pick that up? So, you know, we're saying that live calls used to be the gold standard, um, be, you know, assuming that everyone tells the truth of, of what they actually plan to be doing. But given this concern of X number of Trump voters that are too scared to go on the record as supporting him, how is a pollster without maybe giving out your secret sauce how do you feel you were able to capture that with DeSantis, with Trump in 2016, Pennsylvania, Michigan? And how do you think you're capturing that this year? Just mechanically, what does that look like? Well, all we can do is we can minimize the social desirability effect. And the way you minimize it is you, you, you talk to more average people and you give them a level of anonymity, just like you said, the anonymous page. So, Traditional polling says, hey, we're going to do live callers. We're going to ask 25, 30, 40. And there's even polls who answer 100 questions. So we think that's insane. Do you know anybody who can be disrupted, uh, you know, on a Thursday night when they've got kids sitting around the table and mom and dad are trying to get dinner out and trash taken out? I mean, just making, oh, well, let me stop and take this 15-minute. But no. Yep. Nobody does that. That's not reality. That hadn't been reality for a long time. People aren't just sitting around the parlor waiting on the phone and ring so they can engage in political discourse. This, that is outdated. So these long questionnaires just totally eliminate the kind of people you're going to have participate in polls. People who can answer 25 questions do not represent average people, not by wow. a long shot. You're saying whereas like in the 1950s, it was more culturally normal for people to have these conversations on the phone. Well, and they had time. Yep. I mean, you know, we, we everybody has a little device in their pocket that eliminated boredom. <laughs> I mean, it's, we live in a different world than we used to live in. And so that's part of it. And people are busy, so they don't have time for these crazy questions and, and long surveys. And then, you know, the more anonymous you make them feel. So when you give them other options of participating via email, via text, other digital ways they can participate that make them feel more anonymous, and even you can do the live calls that feel more anonymous. There's ways to do that, too. You end up with people sharing the truth. I mean, you know the difference between somebody who has that, you know, the guy who has that the personal Twitter page and he tweets out pictures of, you know, his uh, his cat and, he, and and his kids and all that kind of stuff. And then he's got that, that little Twitter handle that he just trolls people on and he and and he gives us real opinions. Well, I need the I need that guy because the, the one that's gonna vote is the is the opinion of the trolling guy, not the public guy. So I've got to cut through all that BS and get to what's real. And what's real is what people really think. 
that they don't want to admit. But when they're voting booth all by themselves, they feel like they can say it and they want to say it. And so we've got to cut to, we've got to, we've got to reveal that hidden person. Okay. And so we're trying to get to them. And so we try to do things in a way that make them feel very comfortable, low threshold to entry on the surveys. All surveys are short. You can be done in under three minutes. They're, you know, bada boom, bada bing. Yeah. You, you know, a dad can be walking through the kitchen with, with a baby and a bottle on the other arm uh, and, and, and help his wife bring in the groceries all at the same time and take our polls. I mean, th- th- that's, that's the kind of polls we do, and, and we like that. Um, so I think that it, that methodology is a big difference, and uh, and we, we look to try to do that. Now we can't eliminate the social desirability bias. That's why I can even look in our polls and say Trump's probably doing two or three points better than what we say. Wait, wait, wait. I want I want you to reiterate that. So you're let me just uh, go down the list for our audience. So your latest polls of the last seven ten days or so, you got um, Trump up in Michigan by point six, Trump up in Florida by two point three, Trump down in Wisconsin only one point nine, which is much less than everyone else, and then Trump down only two point three in Pennsylvania. So you are you trying to tell me you think he's really doing better than that in Pennsylvania? I think every poll we put out eliminates about two-thirds of the social desirability bias based on what we do is different. But can I look at that poll right now? Can I look at those answers and look through the person who gave them and look what I know about that person and their voter history and how they answered a series of other questions that I will not share publicly because the last time I shared publicly about asking the neighbor question, some scurrilous pollsters who never gave me fair credit decided to use it and they know who they are and when they're ready to apologize then 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 maybe i'll start talking about what my questions are again but they should be shamed for what they did when they think of a creative idea on their own i hope they'll use it i however admitted that i got that idea from a guy named rod sheely who was an old pollster where i grew up in south carolina so i never claimed it was my idea anyway um we ask a series of other questions and we ask those other questions. It helps get other questions that are, you're more comfortable giving me the truth on then I get a better sense of where you are. So I can see people who say they're undecided, who say they're for Biden, who I know aren't going to vote for Biden. Now I've got to report what they say, but I know they're not going to vote for Biden. I can see where undecideds are shifting. I mean, when you get on the sides in Pennsylvania who absolutely want fracking, think Trump is the only candidate who, who will fight China and have had all they want of politics and sports, you think they're voting for Biden? Well, wait, wait, wait. So, Robert, could you could you tell me this then? I just wanted to know based on what you're telling me now. So you have let's let's take your Michigan poll. You have Trump up 46.5 to 45.9 and you have two percent undecided are you telling me that when you when you say you could tell where they're headed of course you're not putting them in the trump pile but you're saying all i can report is what they say but i can tell you in michigan those undecided are gonna break toward trump okay that, that that's what i wanted to get so you're saying the reason why you could come on here and tell me look here are my numbers 
But here's why, if I if you had to push me, is it going to be better or worse than, than the benchmark that my numbers are laying out? I could say it would be better for Trump based on what you're hearing from the other questions of your, your pollsters um, to this undecided group. Absolutely. I, I, well, and people that are saying they're for Biden who I don't think are going to vote for him because it's just easier to say you're for Biden. You don't get judged when you say for Biden. Could you just give a brief synopsis of of just and, and this is kind of a minor point, but in a close election, it could play a big role. I never even heard of this guy, the libertarian candidate this year. Last time it was uh, Gary Johnson Jorgensen. You have him at two point five percent. It's a woman. Um, oh, <laughs> that shows how much I even know. So at two point five percent in Michigan, which is that's significant. I mean, that that potentially I mean, it's within the margin of error. Do I think she's going to get that many votes? No, I don't. Do I think there are people who don't want to admit they're voting for Trump, but don't want to say they're voting for Biden, who are saying her? Yes, I do. Interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, just from what I know about politics, I, I can't imagine those type of people voting for Biden. I could see maybe some of them not voting, but um, usually they're not going to be the anarchists and you know just people who are kind of where the Democrats are today. Do I have the social desirability context proper in, in asserting like this, that you will find the gap between the the general polling and your polls that try to factor this in most pronounced in the people that I would say are more like the traditional Jesse Helms type of Republicans or on <laughs> issues that are that underlie that. In other words, as opposed to maybe certain fiscal issues, when it comes to things that are perceived to be cultural, social issues, um, you could tell me what you told me off there on about the Confederate flag. I remember even, and I'm 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 pretty young, but I remember the tail end of Jesse Helms' career. That in every election, they always seemed to say, "Oh, they finally got him this time. He's going to lose," and he wound up winning every time. And I, I say that because I see it most pronounced in the Ron DeSantis race. He is regarded as one of the most conservative out there. The media really painted him, especially as he was running against a black candidate as a racist. Um, so it wasn't just kind of like a Mark Martha McSally type of a Republican. Is it true that it's most pronounced with those candidates and those issues? It's, it's most pronounced more based on who they're running against, but also with who they are. So in Helms's case, you're exactly right. Um, you know, before I had ever heard of the social desirability bias, I was just a kid doing politics, and I grew up in South Carolina. And so we the North Carolina TV would obviously bleed over to the upstate where I grew up, and we'd see all the ads on TV. And I would talk to some friends in North Carolina, and they always told me, "Well, if Jesse's only losing by five, he's going to win." You know, and I was like, "What do you mean?" They said, "Well." There's just people who aren't going to tell somebody that, that they're voting for Jesse, but they're going to. And so, so I, I grew up calling this the Helms factor. And so, absolutely, there. You know, Jesse had the thing of being a, a hard right wing conservative, and I believe in 1990 his opponent was Harvey Gantt, um, uh, who was, uh, as I recall, the first um, a black student at Clemson and had, had quite a storied career. And so, you know, you had the social desirability bias working um, certainly in both directions on that thing. And um, so it was no shock there. And and we've seen it displayed again and again in politics. We certainly talked about how it, you know, people would not reveal their true feelings on the Confederate flag. I mean, th- these are these are things that, that you, you always get to is that is that people have feelings on certain issues 
and they don't see that they're in the political mainstream and they don't want to be judged for them. And with Trump, we had that four years ago, and I think it has just heightened this year. Uh, I mean, we, we see it with the coronavirus. I mean, it's finally starting to change a little bit. But there was a while there when even people who were not completely bought into everything the national media was telling about the virus were just they, you could see polls of them saying things that they didn't actually believe. And we've seen yeah. it growing the idea of, hey, I'm going to, you know, our, our biggest answer now is I'm going to do what I can to keep my family safe, but I'm not going to stay home and live in fear. I'm living my life. And that, that you know, that number between, added to the number of this thing is overblown is over 50% of the public now. It's interesting because I, I see that a lot and I find an interesting issue is the mask wearing. So it's kind of like the Confederate flag, kind of like, Certain immigration and race questions are like that, too, where I know that generally the median ideology in this country is not as conservative as, as say, I am. But there are certain things that it just doesn't fly when they have these polls like, oh, 90 percent of even Republicans support uh, the DREAM Act. And it, it just doesn't capture where people are on are on immigration, because if that were true, the reality of the issue and the contours of the electorate and the way the legislation goes would be very different. It clearly isn't. You have certain polls on guns, 95% support expanded background checks, but it's it's a very superficial. It doesn't really reflect that most people are pro-gun. And I think with the mask thing too, it's become almost like I'm a good person. But you look at where people are, everyone wears them. But the more I talk to people, most of them are kind of like, they're just kind of scared of what other people think about them. Because it's so very, it's so public and evident, and they don't want to get yelled at. But very few people I see are really bought into the efficacy as much as the the media and the politicians push it and and allege its efficacy. Are, are you so? Is is that what you're describing with the coronavirus? That's exactly what I'm describing. You know, one one of my uh, good friends, he said, you know, it's like he said, it's like the old Jerry Springer thing. If you poll everybody in your neighborhood. Do you watch Jerry Springer? You're going to get like 95% and say no. But then if you check with Nielsen on how many people in your neighborhood watch it, the ratings will be through the roof. There are just things people don't admit to. I mean, it's just, you know, that's what I can't get over. We just live in this crazy world where people lie about everything. And, you know, they lie to their doctor. They lie to their priest. They lie to their lawyer. You know, they lie to everybody. But all of a sudden they turn into honest aid during a political Oh, I don't buy it. Wow. So that that that's what's undergirding the huge dichotomy between your polls and their polls. So let me go through some of the states for our audience and get your take on it. And I think the way I want to work this is work more from what has traditionally been viewed as more Republican states and then move more and more towards the middle and then maybe even Democrat states that could be in play. So let's talk about Georgia and and Arizona. I mean, these are states that Republicans in, in this generation have always won without question. You look at the RCP and they downright have Biden up 1.2 in their average in Georgia. That's your home state. They got Biden up um, like four points in Arizona. So you're are you saying that the notion that Arizona and, and Georgia are going to Biden are, is totally bunk. Well, first of all, I don't put Georgia and Arizona in the same boat. Mm. I would never put – I put Georgia and Texas in the same boat. 
Anybody who thinks Georgia and Texas are going to vote for Biden is literally, they need to go into drug rehab now. <laughs> That's insane. Straight up insanity. Um, this is not going to happen. Um, yeah, Kelly Leffler or Doug Collins is going to, is going to make the runoff. Uh, you know, the Republicans are going to win both Senate races. Uh, it's just, you know, it, it's crazy, man. That's not even in, in the, in the realm of possibility. Um, so now Arizona, we have a, we have a, a lead for Trump. I think it's a good lead uh, uh, that he can sustain. Um, McSally is uh, as is a little bit distant from that, and um, I think that that is of concern for the McSally crowd. Yep. Uh, Trump would need to win. Uh, Trump's going to need to win Arizona by enough uh, to help McSally go a little further up. And I, I think that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. Um, but I, I, I definitely think Trump is going to uh, win Arizona, but I think he's going to win Georgia and Texas much more soundly. Yeah. And, and also a lot of people forget that Arizona has already shifted. This is nothing new, even though most people in the news never really heard much about Arizona in 2016 being in play or even a battleground. Trump only carried it by a net of three and a half points, um, which was much less than they have traditionally carried it by. So you're saying it's not fundamentally different from 2016. Yes, I I think I think it is not going to be fundamentally different. Um, The only real difference between now and 2016 that I see is Trump's significant growth with the Hispanic support. And I think that's going to help him whether where he's, where he's taken, where he's taken some lumps a little bit with um, some of the suburban women and some of the seniors. I, I think he, I think he's made up a lot of ground um, and his, his numbers with Hispanic voters, especially in Arizona are just phenomenal. So I wanted to get to that because what's interesting is that, I think, you know, when I started getting worried about the polls, my my colleague here, Steve Dace, um, who is another terrific show here at Blaze TV, he said to me, Daniel, look, you can't have it both ways. If you're telling me he's losing LBJ style landslides here, there's no way he's doing better than any recent Republican did with the black and Hispanic votes. But yet those very same polls, even the ones that show him down 10 to 12 points nationally, um, do have him doing better among blacks and Hispanics, some even have him getting 18% among blacks. Do you do your polls show that shift in the black vote as well? Absolutely. Well, first of all, we showed him doing um, in the uh, low teens last time. Now, again, let's think about this. The, I think the exit polls were, were horrible. And the ones that show that Trump got single digits in the black community, I think they were wrong because we know that some of these minority voters don't want to admit they're voting for Trump on the telephone. And we darn sure know that if you won't say on the telephone you're supporting Donald Trump, you're not going to tell the truth to some kid with a clipboard or an iPad at the poll. And so we think that we think that Trump did better than 10 percent with the uh, African-American vote last time. And uh, and we see this time. Definitely. Uh, 15, 16, 17, 18 percent uh, in these polls routinely. Uh, Biden routinely below uh, 80 percent. Biden, uh, any Democrat needs to be over 80. And we, we, we have a higher number of undecideds uh, than normal. 
we see the so Biden has not broken eighty, and he is uh, and Trump has not gone below fifteen uh, with African American vote. We think that and it bodes well for them to, to break toward him, and that's the ones who are saying they're voting for Trump. And there, there are some who are very hesitant to admit it. Um, we also see the Hispanic vote at north of 30, every single state. And so, uh, you know, Biden needs to be Biden needs to get that vote to, you know, 65 or 70. Uh, and I don't see how he does it. So if it, if it weren't, you know, certainly Trump has lost some with suburban women and, you know, they're kind of that's kind of a misnomer, too, because a lot of them are coming back due to violence because they really d- don't want violence uh, and it has turned them off and made them con- be very concerned. Um, but, you know, they just they don't like his personality. Uh, he just kind of rubs the wrong way. And, and, and they've shown that. Uh, but the senior vote is what's been difficult because seniors have dealt with coronavirus in a much different way and have a much different experience with coronavirus. Your average senior doesn't have children that are trying to, you know, do distance learning that they just as soon go back to school in their house. Their uh, access to health care and access to an income wasn't disrupted by shutdowns. Uh, you know, they, they, their insurance wasn't in jeopardy because their job, because they got laid off. You know, their checks came regardless. And so they don't, the, the, the things that make people that are non-seniors weigh the benefits of shutdowns and lockdowns and precautions versus the risk of the virus, those, they don't have to weigh that. And so, you know, they're making a decision that probably makes sense for them. But so that's been a place the GOP was generally able to kind of rely on uh, a little edge there. And Trump has not had that edge. So, so how do you have him up in Florida then? Where's the ground being made up? Well, one, he's doing amazing with Hispanics in Florida, well over 50%. And let's remember, in Florida, there's a very different environment because we have so many folks. The, the folks that are in Florida from this country, are a lot of them came from Cuba. They came from the, the Central America. They, they, you know, they came from Colombia. They came from um, uh, Venezuela. And they see... They socialism scares them and they know what it's like. They've either been neighbors to it or they've seen it and they are vehemently against it. Not to mention Florida has got a significant uh, Jewish vote and the Jewish community has seen great strides toward them. And again, they have a guy running who has, who has a Jewish grandchildren. And, you know, and then Florida was a huge beneficiary of a strong economy. And, you know, Florida, though it has a lot of seniors, it tends to have a lot of upper income seniors because, you know, it's a state with no income tax, uh, uh, a state income tax. And so those seniors are seniors who would pay a little bit of a price if Joe Biden is the president. I mean, the people who, who think that, that their investments and stuff are, are, are going to start returning a little less um, money after taxes. And those seniors start thinking twice about this. So it has a nice mixture that I think is beneficial. This is a nice mixture for Trump on the seniors and the rest of the population. And frankly, Florida's a really big space place. 
And people who like space, they're overwhelmed. People who really want to see investments in attention space very much like Trump. Very interesting. So now that we're on the topic, I want to get back to the black vote in some other states. But on the Hispanic vote, um, a lot of people are telling me to watch Nevada because, you know, it was a state Trump seemed to overperform and he didn't carry it ultimately, but he overperformed there. Is that going to be a state where his growth among the Hispanic voters uh, makes a difference? I think you're going to. First of all, Joe Biden went to Nevada. If Joe Biden didn't think there was a reason to go to Nevada, he wouldn't have gone there. Mm. All right. Joe Biden doesn't just leave his house for nothing. (laughs) Um, We know this. Um, So let's look at two things. One, part of why Trump lost Nevada last time was, you know, the the unions. What is it called? It's not public services. The um, SEIU. The ones that, that do like the casinos, like the waiters, waitresses, and the, uh, bartenders. There's a name for that. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, I see what you mean. So that's private sector. Yeah, but yes, yeah, not yes, not yes, definitely private sector. But anyway, those unions were just uni- just completely for Hillary last time. They organized huge get out the vote efforts. But those same waiters, busboys, and 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 bartenders. They they like that Trump economy. They liked it a lot. You add they they know what things were like when that economy was booming, and you add that to a, a Hispanic population where Trump is setting some records, and that's why Biden was there. <laughs> so I can tell you, I I, don't, I I wouldn't put it down as a win for Trump, but I would put it down as a place to watch if if this. If what we perceive might be a nice little uh, uh, a Trump wave, if it's as big as it, it could be, if there's an undercurrent as big as, as, as it might very well be, then I, I think you might not be surprised to see that. All righty. So let's move to where this will be won or lost in the Midwest. You know, obviously, if you assume he holds the traditional states he gets and holds Florida, North Carolina, that gets you to the Midwest where he really has to pick up one of those states. And we're assuming, you know, Iowa and Ohio have been stronger. Out of the big three that we like to focus on, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, could you A, rank them for us in in the order of which one is more, is the most gettable to the least gettable and how the black vote, the suburban vote, and then that, kind of union blue collar vote plays into the dynamics of those states. All right. Most gettable, I would tell you, I'm going to give you a weird answer. The most gettable, I think is Pennsylvania, but it's also the most likely to be stolen. Um, and that is because I, I believe and have, have, have lots of, uh, evidence uh, to, to this from stories I've heard over the years from watching it um, that Pennsylvania has got a, a, a very effective voter fraud machine and I think giving people unrequested absentee balance is only going to put that machine on steroids. So you're saying that's why it's worse than last time because of the cloak of the coronavirus stuff and the fact that they're having the mail-in ballots. Because that was going to be my next question to you just in general. 
how you're this confident given that we have so many early votes being cast through this mail-in system. First of all, I know a little bit of something about how the voters who haven't voted but once in the last 20 years are voting. Because we've been checking them too. And the people who have been pretty much laid out of elections but maybe made, but made it once in the last 18 years between 2016 and 1992, uh, after now having survey, surveyed about 200,000 of them, 58% of them are voting for Trump and a lot of them are coming out. And, and are those people that, that you traditionally think would vote on election day? Those people traditionally don't vote at all. And they're coming out. They're voting early. Uh, they're saying they're going to vote on election day. Um, we're seeing uh, the uh, voter registration advantage that was in Florida, even from four years ago, has been cut in half. Uh, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, we saw a significant increase in Pennsylvania with, with that voter registration uh, edge for Republicans this time. We're seeing all kinds of numbers that, that give me indication that something that the electorate is very different than what we've seen before. And I think I think that you, people need to be aware of that. The thought has always been you increase the amount of voters and you're going to help the Democrats. I don't – my numbers tell me that's not true. That The kind of people – you know, I, I think that conservatives will agree that the people who tell you the sky is falling every two years are Democrats. There are a lot of regular old folks who just didn't get messed with politics and have never really seen a need to get involved. And then all of a sudden this summer, you know, good old fashioned Fourth of July fireworks and, uh, uh, you know, Mount Rushmore and, and saluting the flag all of a sudden became passe. And people are tearing out statues of Columbus and Lincoln and, What's happening? And all of a sudden, the country that they didn't ever think was in jeopardy, something's different. And that motivates people that maybe this election they don't want to miss. So if you were a committed leftist activist, you've been, you hadn't really missed a lot of elections anyway. Interesting. So let's take this on to so the other two states, Michigan and Wisconsin. Obviously, Trump won both of those by just a hairline victory, very small margins. Um, To me, those states are interesting. Like you look at Wisconsin, on the one hand, uh, Trump really seems to have made so many inroads in the old Democrat union areas uh, in the northwest of the state, upstate. But on the other hand, they're bleeding some of the traditional Republican Milwaukee suburbs in those wow counties. Um, where do you see Wisconsin and Michigan now? Uh, I, I think Michigan is the next more likely after Pennsylvania. Uh, and I, you know, I just, I can make it very simple. I, I think he's probably going to win Michigan and win it by a point or two. So why is that better off than Wisconsin? We see more hidden vote in Wisconsin. So, and I just don't know how they're going to, I don't know how they're going to manifest themselves. I think Wisconsin is going to be even tighter than Michigan. So that's something to watch. Okay, what about the big wild card? Everyone's looking at Minnesota. Minnesota is kind of the opposite of Arizona, where it's been trending away from Democrats. 
um, even before Trump, but certainly with Trump's appeal to those old DFL type of voters, um, you got Colin Peterson in that congressional district in the Northeast that seems like he's finally ripe for pickings. He's not raising much money. He's a strong challenger. Do you think Minnesota is significantly in play? We haven't been back there in a while, so I don't, I, I can't speak to it definitively just because I don't like to look at what others are doing and tell you. Um, so I think it very well could be what we saw before as it was. I mean, we saw, we did two polls, one of them we showed dead even, and one we showed that Biden was winning by five. So we definitely saw a, a, a swing. Sure. I mean, because that 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 would that would be another bulwark if if things go awry. I mean, it's hard to see a scenario of him losing the three big Midwestern states. Well, I guess um, the Rust Belt. I mean, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, but then somehow winning Minnesota. But that would make uh, certainly a difference. Do you see any other part of the country to watch? I mean, if the if again, if the, if if the hidden vote wave is is as big as it could be. Yeah, I'd watch. I'd I, I'd watch a um, New Hampshire, maybe. Interesting. Okay, so and then and then I guess I, I assume you're still giving him that uh, d- the congressional district in Maine. Not necessarily. Um, I haven't I haven't calculated that in my math. I mean, it, it, I think there's a possibility he wins it, but frankly, I mean, man, we got so much to do. We we have not spent our time polling congressional district in Maine. Sure. No, I mean that 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 makes sense. Um, I mean, it's just a matter of, again, you know, seeing where that, that 270 comes from. And, and it does seem like the most likely scenario is obviously holding what was always perceived as the more solid states in the South that are considered battlegrounds. But then, um, you know, it really doesn't, it really boil down to ultimately winning one of Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin. Yes, it does. Wow. So that's that's certainly big. Um, what do you make of these numbers that I'm seeing about real solid Republican improvement in voter registration in Pennsylvania? I think they're real solid improvements in Republican voter registration in Pennsylvania. I mean, I, I, I think we're seeing that a lot of places. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing about the Trump economy is it's addictive. When people get a taste of it, they liked it. And, you know, it's like people hadn't had chocolate for a while and then they got some chocolate and then all of a sudden some, this, this bad sickness came around and wouldn't let anybody have any chocolate. And now they're just trying to figure out how to get back to chocolate. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, again, I mean, th- this is this is the other side that, you know, obviously you're not going to hear elsewhere. And um, this is what I want to bring out. I know you got to got to run. I want to have you back. One quick question before we end. So. I think everyone would agree wherever you had the baseline, Trump was trending up, certainly since the convention. Um, But then he seemed to trend down about two weeks ago. Why did that happen? Did that have to do with the debate? And where do you think it stands right now? I think it was was a few events that happened all at one time. First, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, as when anybody of her stature dies, you know, we had a we had a week of people saying great things about her. I thought the president showed incredible dignity uh, for her in not announcing his replacement and letting you know, I mean, letting her have her much deserved week of attention, which he got. But when in the midst of that week of attention, 
it's very clear that, you know, here she is, this trailblazer, did amazing things, and she did not want Trump to replace her. And then the media, you know, to their credit, rolls out all kinds of videotape of Republicans saying things that appear to be very hypocritical now about replacing her. The nuance of who control what chamber, that's all lost. Swing voters like fair play. And, they, and, and, and in general, voters will, will punish hypocrisy. And the Republicans are seen as being hypocritical. So that was a downward trend, and Trump was paying the price for it. Um, you know, Obama nominated somebody, Trump nominated somebody. What the Senate did with it is who should be paying the price. But no, Trump was paying the price for it. So then after that, when he made it clear who his pick was, we move away from debating whether he should have picked, and the debate becomes on the pick, which is which. Once people got to know her, was beneficial. But so he's coming off, you know, a little, you know, stymied a little bit from from the uh, the picking a court pick and seeming unfair. And then that Monday, the, the whole story about the tax returns came out, and they hadn't paid taxes and stuff. Well, a lot of people who have been following this story for four years, just figured eventually there was going to be a story that said Trump hadn't paid taxes. You know, everybody was kind of ready for it, but not low information swing voter types. They hadn't been thinking about it. And, you know, we're all, you know, a lot of people that are in this business, they, we all kind of understand that some of these big time business people who have major losses one year and major gains the next kind of level it out and don't pay a lot of taxes. You know, we hear stories about the kind of taxes that Amazon and stuff like that's paying. And so that was just kind of baked in for us that no, this guy probably paid tons of income taxes through his employees, but did he pay a lot of personal income taxes? We just assumed he probably didn't. Swing voters didn't think that, and it was still kind of news to them. It's not a shock value to them that we can't really grasp. Then add to that a debate where if you like Trump, you thought he did great. If you like Biden, you thought he did great. But if you were kind of on the bubble right then, it was just kind of a nothing burger. And you didn't end up liking it. I mean, we saw a couple of polls where both of them dropped after the debate. I don't think anybody came out of that debate going, man, how wasn't for that guy, but that's my guy now. I think people kind of, were, you know, returned to their corners and said, well, we survived the debate. So I think those three things together, boom, 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 were tough. A week of Amy Barrett talking in front of people and reminding people she's a, she's a, you know, she is a regular person from middle America who drives a minivan and, has, you know, is this working mom who is, you know, intellectually superior to, to you know, most of us. And, and, you know, and she manages to be a great mom and to, and to be a, an incredible judge and all these, I mean, like she is the definition of the modern woman, right? And like she stole on the show a little bit. I think he's getting a bump from that. And then Trump back out on the trail. There's just, you know, I've always said Trump is a lot better when seven sentences he is in one. <laughs> and, and I think that, and, and that's the salesman in him, you know, yeah, I mean, th- think about it. Great salesman selling your car. They don't do a good job of, you know, getting it all said in one sentence. They won't tell you about these little features. I mean, he is a salesman. In his heart, he is a salesman. He is a salesman because he reads you and knows what you want. And he, and he tries his best to tell you how he's going to do it. But he just does it most artfully when he gets to speak at length. 
And that's why him going back to these things, you, you know, people say, well, you know, that, that we're not even watching the, the, these, these Trump rallies. They're not even on TV all the time. They're cutting away. Guys, it, it ain't about what we're seeing on CNN or Fox. It's about the dominance of local media. When he comes into a town, all of their TV stations are all about it. All of their newspapers are out of it. You know, when 5,000 people leave somewhere, the ripple effect of them talking to their friends, these things move voters. And friend to friend is the most powerful thing there is in politics. And it starts a ripple effect, and those concentric circles start bouncing everywhere. And so it, you, you got to understand the impact on local media and, and the reverberation of the friend effect. And so I think that is why I'm seeing a, a tick back up for him is probably the Conan Barrett and that he's back out there doing what he likes to do best. And frankly, last night on NBC, I saw great discipline out of him. I saw him answer the white supremacy question the most definitive way I've ever seen him do it. I saw him pivot it back and, it just it was more discipline and um then i mean if he is going to be that disciplined for the next 3 weeks i think i think biden better better hang on and that's the thing what you're describing is a very volatile situation it doesn't sound to me like 96 2000 a kind of more of a stable political environment um this is a type of thing that seems to be very fluid um and it's an interesting point about amy barrett because Traditionally, that issue has always helped us. I mean, the polling on do you want a an originalist or do you want an activist? Nobody, well, everyone knows what a liberal judge is, and and that issue is always. And liberal pollsters will never tell you that that's a good issue for them. But you are saying that for that week it was about a hypocrisy of filling the seat. Then now it's become back to the traditional perceived hypocrisy. Yeah, now it's a matter of. Well, do you want Amy Barrett on the court? Do you want someone like that? Do you want judges like that um, as opposed to the real activist judges that let out criminals and things like that? And that's more his strength. Wow. You know, I give you a lot of credit that you're willing to come on here for a full hour without staff, really show your work, um, you know, back it up. A lot of these other pollsters will criticize you, but they don't come on. They don't do more than a few minutes of talking points and with all their staff and their tweets and they have their big media machine behind them. And this is the long form discussion we love and would really appreciate if you could come back and update us before the election one other time and kind of revisit where the momentum is. Okay. Well, I listen, I, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I don't, unlike some of the, uh, paid political uh, uh, purveyors of uh, agenda-driven polls. I don't, I don't mind standing behind what I'm saying. And um, I, I would love to. Perfect. Well, we're really looking forward to it. We are way out of time. Folks, send me your comments, questions, and concerns to drhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Share on our Facebook page, Miniman Speak Easy, as well as my Twitter account. Let me know if you have questions for Robert um, on, on some of the races and some of the demographics, what you're seeing here. This is very enlightening. Thanks so much, Robert. Have a terrific weekend. And thank you all for listening. And God bless. 